Acts chapter 7 this morning. Acts chapter 7. Go ahead and turn there with me. A few weeks ago, we were introduced to a man named Stephen. He was one of the seven men selected to help take care of the widows, if you remember. He was the first individual mentioned by uh, Luke. We know that um, he not only helped care for the widows there in Jerusalem, but after the the great scattering, the severe persecution that um, was coming upon the church. And he was out um, ministering in the synagogues and, and um, whatnot, and there was opposition that had been growing. We had learned that he was known for performing signs and wonders among the people. He was an apparently in a gifted evangelist because he's referred to Philip the Evangelist later in the book of Acts. He had a heart for sharing the gospel, but apparently was a gifted man in evangelism. If you remember from our study a couple of weeks ago, he was preaching in one of the synagogues, and a group referred to as a synagogue of the freedmen came and began to confront him. They were offended by the things that he was preaching. So they dragged him out. They took him in front of the Sanhedrin, which was, the think of it as the Supreme Court of Israel, if you will. And so took him and dragged him before them. But rather than defend himself, you remember two weeks ago, rather than defend himself, he actually went on the offensive, if you will. He recounted how Israel had resisted Moses, had resisted God. Time and time again, he reminded them of how their forefathers had persecuted the prophets and killed them. He showed how Israel had this habit of resisting or persecuting, killing the very ones that God had sent to rescue them. And so in what your Bible's referred to as his defense really isn't much of a defense because he doesn't do much to defend himself. Instead, he basically says, well, let's look at Israel's history. And he goes through and he gives these great examples of how God continued to try to rescue Israel but the leadership and Israel as a whole continued to resist and to push back on that. And so then he took and he turned the tables on his accusers, the synagogue of the freedmen group, and then the Sanhedrin who were all questioning him and confronting him and coming up with their false witnesses and their false testimony, making up lies. And he basically says, you're no different than your forefathers. You are still, just like them, resisting the Holy Spirit. Meaning that as they resisted him, they were resisting another attempt at God reaching down to save them through a presentation of the gospel. And so that was our introduction to Stephen. Now, we waited a week to get to this because today we're going to talk about Stephen's martyrdom, his death, and I didn't think we wanted to address that on Mother's Day. Now, we all know you mothers are martyrs in many respects, right? So we decided to kind of jump over. So today we're going to look at the stoning of Stephen. And as we do it, I'm going to try to play off basically a contrast of sorts, meaning we're going to see how his accusers behave, and then we're going to see how Stephen behaves, and we're going to balance those kind of back and forth. It's a fairly short passage. It's only about six or seven verses. Let me go ahead and start by reading verse 54 of chapter 7. Now when they, which are the Sanhedrin and the synagogue of the freedmen, now when they heard this, this refers to his challenge of them resisting the Holy Spirit, being just like their forefathers. 
When they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. So the first thing we see is that when Stephen's accusers are confronted with the truth, their resistance, their history of resistance to God, they become enraged. Notice here he says that they were cut to the quick. Literally, it means that they had their hearts sawn in two. Most translations render it as they became furious or they became enraged, which is a great way to say it. Now, typically when somebody's confronted by the truth, you see one of three reactions. One is sort of indifference. Yeah, whatever. They may agree or disagree with you. Or you see conviction, where you confront somebody with the truth and it challenges their heart. They agree. Yeah, you're right. But oftentimes it's a third reaction, which is anger. Getting upset. How dare you? You know, Or pointing the finger back, right? The latter is what we actually see here. Luke records that they were so angry at Stephen, it says that they began gnashing their teeth. My kids have told me that I do that when I'm angry. You know? It's important to remember here that Stephen was addressing two groups of people. These are supposed to be leaders. These are supposed to be the court system, if you will. Prosecuting attorney, as well as the witness, or the, the, the people who would help to defend you. And yet, they're behaving this way. They're angry and they're gnashing their teeth. They're enraged. We've seen these same leaders act like this before. You remember back in Acts chapter 5, when Peter and John were arrested and they were told, Stop preaching in Jesus' name. And when Peter and John said, Sorry, can't do it. The text tells us, But when they heard this, they, the same people, were cut to the quick and actually intended to slay them. So they were willing to violate the law. They were so angry at Peter and John. They're so angry at Stephen that they're willing to violate God's law and kill innocent men. That's these people. What's our takeaway as we look at verse 54 here? The takeaway is that, pretty simple, the world itself it may not like the truth, especially when it comes to sin, or about Jesus. But fear of how they might respond to the truth shouldn't deter deter us from speaking the truth, should it? We are living in a time now where it's getting more challenging to speak the truth because more people are offended by it. We see that around us all the time. But we shouldn't have that deter us, and we're going to see that in the text today. It shouldn't dissuade us from just speaking the truth. Now, You know, if we speak the truth in a way that is mean-spirited, we kind of deserve the backlash we get. So we need to always do it with grace, mercy. In fact, when Paul left Timothy at um, Ephesus, he told him he left him there to, to help to put an end to the false teaching that was taking place. And one of the things he tells Timothy is he's to confront these men. But he tells them to do it gently so that they might come to an understanding of the truth. And so we always have to balance truth with love and mercy and grace, but nonetheless, we still have to speak the truth, and when we do, they will not be happy with us. But we should not allow that to deter us from speaking the truth. I've shared this before. We've we've seen a number of individuals come out recently, and um, some agencies, Christian agencies that have come out and have decided to stop speaking the truth in certain areas because it's offensive and well, they still agree, they still believe in those things, but they're just not going to say them. 
we shouldn't allow what the world thinks about the truth and how the world might respond to the truth. We shouldn't allow that to deter us because the world needs the truth. If you have a child who's doing something that is dangerous for them, but you know if you tell them they're going to be offended by it, what do you do? Suck it up, buttercup. Right? They're going to be told the truth. Because you love them, right? It's the same thing with the world. The world doesn't like the truth. These Pharisees, these Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the synagogue of the freedmen needed Jesus Christ. They had rejected their Savior. They put Him on a cross, killed Him, and God is saying, okay, here's another opportunity. I'm sending you Stephen. He's going to confront you in your sin. You need this. Stephen wasn't deterred. Neither should we. Now, in contrast, I want you to look at Stephen's behavior. Look at verses 55 and 56. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So in contrast, when Stephen is threatened with the angry mob, he does something fairly simple. He looks up. It says that he looked up into heaven. Notice it starts first by saying that he was full of the Holy Spirit. We've talked about how this phrase is used in the book of Acts. Sometimes, to be filled with the Spirit is a one-time supernatural event to empower you for a specific, a specific purpose. For instance, Peter standing up to preach, and it says he's filled with the Spirit, meaning the Spirit is now enabling him, filling him, to preach at that moment. So there's times where it's used that way. It's kind of a one-time, I call it a one-off. Now, it may happen multiple times, meaning the Holy Spirit may come upon you and do that. We saw that at Pentecost. When the tongues of fire came down, that was a one-time filling of sorts. Now, the other side of that was there was the baptism of the Spirit, which is the indwelling permanence of the Holy Spirit in one's life. But sometimes when you see he was filled with, it's talking about that specific moment filled with the supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit for a specific task at that moment. I believe that's what Luke is saying here. That at this moment, the Holy Spirit, in some respects, overpowered Stephen, empowered him to do what's about to happen here. Now, other times when it says that he was full of the Spirit, it means that it's his demeanor, it's who he is. It's, he shows and reveals the gifts of the Holy Spirit, love, peace, patience, kindness. And it's a general term just related to describing somebody. This man was full of the Spirit. You can see it oozing out of him. Well, again, in this particular instance, I believe that what Luke is telling us is that the Holy Spirit, at this moment, supernaturally empowered Stephen, likely something he had been doing throughout But Luke makes a reference that what we're about to see is going to require the full power of the Holy Spirit in Stephen's life. Notice he describes Stephen gazing intently up into heaven. Now, what's interesting here is that heaven is used twice in this passage. Sometimes the word heaven simply refers to what we see above us. It's the sky. And sometimes that's generally more often than not, it's actually plural, and that's really what this says here, that he was gazing intently up into heavens, plural. means he's simply looking up at the sky. Now ask yourself, why might he look up into the sky at this point? Why do we ever look up? Have you ever done that yourselves when you're praying? 
our concept of where God lives, if you will, even though we know that he's here, his spirit is dwelling within us, what do we do? When we look to help, we oftentimes raise our eyes up to heaven. That's basically what's being described here, is that he's gazing up, he's looking up, because that's where he envisions the Lord, if you will. So that first instance there refers to the sky, I believe. But it's used a little bit later as well. And it's where he literally gets to look into heaven itself. And that's going to become important. But I think the first thing we need to see here is that when Peter, I'm sorry, when Stephen begins to see what's happening, I believe at this point he probably knew his life was near over. These men that are raging at him, totally out of control, We'll see they were beginning to pick up stones, grinding their teeth at him. So he looks up. That's his response. Their response is to get angry. His response when confronted with the truth about what was going to happen to him was to look up. Now while he was staring into the sky, something miraculous actually happens. He's given a glimpse into heaven itself. We see two things. The first one is he sees the glory of God, it says. The glory of God. The second thing he sees is rather unique. It's Jesus himself. Now, you know, what's interesting is that Stephen is part of a fairly small club in the scriptures. A number of people had seen the glory of God, and even Moses, remember that story. But not a whole lot of people in the Old Testament or the New Testament had been given the privilege to look up into heaven itself and see God himself, if you will, up in heaven. Very few. In fact, as far as I know, there's only five other individuals that have had this privilege. The first one I want you to turn to is Second Chronicles. Micaiah. Whoops, pages right here. Second Chronicles chapter eighteen. Look at verse 18 of chapter 18. Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing on his right and on his left. The Lord said, Who will entice Ahab, king of Israel, to go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said this while another said that. Then the Spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, How? He said, I will go and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, You are to entice him and prevail also. Go and do so. So Micaiah got this opportunity to glimpse into heaven and see the Lord sitting on his throne. How about Isaiah chapter 6? Do you know that one? Isaiah chapter 6, just look at verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah, King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, and two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. 
And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. You can read the rest of that on your own, but Isaiah had an opportunity to look up and to see the Lord on his throne. How about Ezekiel chapter 1? Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. Now it came about in the thirteenth year, on the first day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Chabar among the exiles, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. I'll give you two more references. You can simply write these down. But Paul himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the first six verses mentions being taken up into the heavens. Able to when he said he saw things that people hadn't seen before. Then we have John in the book of Revelation, chapter 4. I want you to turn there with me just briefly. John, or Revelation, chapter 4. Starting in verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, the door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things immediately I was in the spirit and behold a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne and he who was sitting like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance around the throne were 24 thrones and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. And so you have these five individuals that were given the special privilege of actually being able to see into heaven. And then we come to Acts chapter 6 here with Stephen being given the same privilege. As he's gazing up into the sky, it says that they split, and he was actually able to look up into heaven, and he sees the glory of God And then he sees something else that's rather unique. The first unique thing about Stephen's vision is that he saw Jesus standing. Did you catch that? Standing at the right hand of God. Most references to Jesus being in heaven refer to him being simply at God's right hand or specifically being seated at God's right hand. Let me read you a couple of passages here. Psalm chapter 110.1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, or a footstool for your feet. Jesus referred to himself on multiple times as sitting at God's right hand. Matthew chapter 22, chapter 26. The last thing that Mark tells us about Jesus in his gospel is that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God after his ascension. Mark chapter 16, verse 19. When Paul wrote to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 3, he said, Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. One more for you. The author of Hebrews, on four different occasions, First one is in Hebrews 1.3, it says that he had made, or when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then three other times in the book of Hebrews, he refers to Jesus sitting 
at the right hand of God. These two verses here in the book of Acts, as Stephen, um, are the only place we see Jesus standing. Do you know that? It's the only place the scriptures describe Jesus as standing at the right hand of God. I believe that's important, but I'm going to make you wait for a moment before I tell you why. So the first unique thing about his vision is he sees Jesus standing in heaven. The second unique thing about his vision is how he refers to Jesus. Look back down in there. Do you see where he refers to Jesus? He refers to him as the Son of Man. Now, Jesus' favorite term for himself in the Gospels was Son of Man. He uses it 84 times of himself. Now, it's used throughout the Old Testament, this phrase, Son of Man, and in almost every single instance, it refers to humanity. It's a way of describing somebody as being a human. Okay? However, there's one instance in the Old Testament where it refers to divinity, which is a rather strange thing. Son of Man, but it's a reference to divinity, and it's from Daniel chapter 7. Why don't you go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. You might have a, a title in your Bible there for this section. It might say something like, The Son of Man, or The Son of Man Presented. Go ahead and just read this. Just a couple of verses. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one, like a Son of Man, was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the people's nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is is one which will not be destroyed. So what is Daniel talking about here? Daniel's talking about divinity coming down, looking like the Son of Man. He comes in human form, comes in human flesh. But you notice those two verses we read were all about dominion and authority and a kingdom. This idea of the Son of Man is a fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. Jesus used it of himself as a fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, which was... Divinity, the Son of God, coming down in human flesh, but ultimately being given full dominion, authority, a kingdom. So really, the Son of Man phrase, when it applies to Jesus, isn't really just a way of describing his humanity. It's actually, in fact, a term used to describe his divinity as a fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. And what's interesting to me about this, Stephen, if I remember right, is the only one outside the Gospels that refers to Jesus as the Son of Man, or as the Son of Man. And he happens to do it at this moment. I believe that by doing this, by referring to the Son of Man, or Jesus as the Son of Man here, Stephen identifies Jesus as the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. He was the righteous one mentioned in verse 52 of Acts chapter 7, that the prophets had announced. Look back at verse 57 just briefly. Oops, I'm still in Daniel. I've got to get back to Acts. 
Remember in verse 57, he says, But they cried out with a loud voice, and they covered their ears. I'm sorry. Go back. Is it verse 57? Um, I'm sorry. Verse 52. Verse 52. Which, which of the prophets did, you, did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one. That's a reference back to Daniel. The righteous one who would come whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. That phrase, righteous one, is synonymous there with son of man. And so what Stephen is doing here is he's looking up into heaven, he sees Jesus up there, and he refers to him not as Jesus specifically right at this moment here, but as the son of man, calling attention to the fact that he's the righteous one the prophets had foretold. He was the fulfillment of Daniel. And that meant that he had been given divine authority over all things. That's who he sees. So we have this amazing picture. Let me put it together for you here. We have this amazing picture of Jesus, the Son of Man, the one who typically sits at the right hand of God with all power and authority. He serves as both judge and jury. He repays men according to their deeds. But in this instance, he's not sitting as we would expect, but instead... He's actually risen to his feet and he's now standing as Stephen faces his imminent death. So the question is, why is Jesus standing? Now, there's a million different proposals made by scholars who are much smarter than me. There's a lot of opinions. Um, Most of them revolve around Jesus' role as both judge and advocate. I think Matthew chapter 10 actually sheds some light on it for us, which I think gives us probably the best, I think the best explanation of what's happening here. Look at Matthew chapter 10. And this almost gives me goosebumps as I think about it. Matthew chapter 10. Look down at verse 28. We're going to read a handful of verses here. Jesus told his disciples, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, here's the key, I will also confess him before the Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Catch what he said there? Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. I believe that when we look at Acts chapter 7 here, and Stephen looks up into heaven... The reason Jesus got up off of his throne, stood up, and is standing is because Jesus himself is confessing Stephen before the Father because Stephen is confessing him before men. Now some have argued, oh, he's just standing to welcome him. That might be a part of it. But witnesses would stand when giving testimony. And what we see here is Jesus, as he looks down upon Stephen, knowing he's about ready to be martyred, stands up and confesses him before the Heavenly Father. And I think Stephen understood that. That might be one 
area that he got his courage from. So what's our takeaway? You know, when the world persecutes or threatens us for confessing Jesus and speaking the truth, we should look up too. Look up. Look to the one who promised to confess us before his heavenly Father. So when we think about what's happening around us now, and many would like us simply to shut up, keep Jesus' words in mind. If you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father. Which side would you rather be on? Our courage should come from the fact that as we continue to profess Christ, Jesus stands and confesses us before the Father. I'd rather have the approval of that one man than everybody around me. They're not going to confess anything for us, are they? But Jesus will. Let's move on. Verses 57 through 58. Oops, got to go back to Acts again. Acts chapter 7, verse 57 there. When he says, Behold, I see the heavens open up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, I believe they understood what he was saying there as well. They cried out with a loud voice. They covered their ears and they rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid, their, laid aside their robes at his feet and a young man, or at the feet of a young man named Saul. <clears throat> so again, they're confronted with the truth. That Jesus is the one that's both judge and jury. He's advocating for Stephen. And what's their response? They rush upon him, they run him out of the city, and they immediately begin to stone him. In verse 54, they were offended because Stephen accused them of resisting. Here they're offended, further enraged, because they believe Stephen is speaking blasphemy by equating Jesus with Daniel, son of man, and by claiming that Jesus is currently in heaven at God's right hand. That would have been offensive to them. Can't really blame them for wanting to stone him because the Old Testament penalty for blasphemy was stoning. That's Leviticus chapter 24. You know, when we look at this, what's striking about it is, this is no longer a trial, is it? It started out as a sham trial. It started out with false witnesses and false accusations, bribes being paid. There's no weighing of any evidence here. It's not even a formal verdict, if you think about it. They're so enraged that they can't stand to hear anymore that they shout and plug their ears as they drag Stephen out of the city and they began stoning him. Now, this is really ironic on a couple of fronts. Stephen has accused them of being, the phrase he used was, uncircumcised in hearts and ears. And what are they doing now? If you look back at the verse, it's basically sticking their fingers in their ear. Nah, 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 nah. They're not going to listen. They just couldn't stand to hear what he had to say. 
Doesn't that describe uncircumcised? They're behaving exactly the way that Stephen had accused them of behaving. And then the second ironic thing about it is he had accused them of being like their forefathers who persecuted and murdered the prophets. And what are they doing here? Murdering another prophet. They're just behaving exactly the same way that Stephen had accused them of behaving. Isn't that often the way it works? I think our takeaway with something like this, we can't expect the world to act rationally when they hear the truth. We can expect that they want to stick their fingers in their ears, that they, that they don't want to hear it. They don't. Isn't that what we see happening right now? It isn't just that you disagree with me and I disagree with you and you're okay to disagree. It's, and, and in fact, it's not even just they don't want you to say it. They don't want you to believe it. But right now, I mean, if you think about what's happened with, with some of the big media stuff and Twitter and Facebook and the blocking of posts, etc., you know, um, they don't want to hear it. That's conservative stuff, politics. But it's even worse when it comes to Christianity. They don't want to hear it. For years we've been told you can't even discuss your faith with a student who asks in high school. Or if a coach decides he wants to pray by himself even. You know, there was a, a football coach not too long ago was... was um, kicked off the team, basically fired because he wanted to stand on the sidelines by himself and he happened to bow his head and was told, you can't even bow your head. You want to pray? Just pray with your eyes open. He's like, I pray with my head bowed. They wouldn't let him bow his head on the sidelines all by himself. Don't want to hear it. Don't want to see it. Don't say that word. You know, we've got a school out in or a school system out in California that's that's um, using some Aztec god chants that they've been using in their classrooms. Why can they chant the name of an ancient Aztec god who sacrificed children, but you can't say the name Jesus or have a Bible on your desk? Because fingers are in the we can't expect the world to act rationally. They certainly didn't act rationally here with Stephen. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. It tells us why. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. Is it 1 Corinthians? Maybe it's 1 Corinthians 4. 4. Hold on a minute. I always get confused. What's that? Go ahead and read. Somebody read it for me. There you go. Yep. Well, I know why. I'm looking at chapter two. <laughs> go ahead and read it out. Read it out loud for me. Yeah, that's all right. I kept looking at chapter 2 because it's the way my Bible's laid out here. I see chapter 4 up in the corner. I'm looking at the verse. Um, why can't we expect the world to act rationally when they hear the truth? Because it says the enemy has blinded them. Shut their eyes. 
They've got these uncircumcised heart and ears full of wax, all because of what the enemy has done to them. Which means that when we look at the world and it acts irrationally, we should be able to express a certain amount of compassion and understanding for that. Um, maybe it's not kind, but I use the phrase oftentimes, they're just a bunch of idiots. They don't know any better. you got to expect them to act like idiots. Their eyes haven't been opened yet. And I'd still act like that if my eyes hadn't been opened. And so that's what we see here, is they're, they're simply behaving the way that they're the one who owns their heart, the enemy. They're behaving like that, and we can't expect really anything different from them. We shouldn't be shocked by it. What's Stephen's response in contrast? Verses 59 and 60. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and he said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Now we know he didn't fall asleep. It's used of Christians because we know that that's not the end. He's not dead. He's alive in paradise with Christ. Do you notice how many of the events or the things surrounding Stephen's death actually paralleled that of Christ? I don't know if you caught that or not. I think it's probably deliberate by Luke. Both were falsely accused of blasphemy, including blasphemy against the temple. Both were accused of that. Both were tried in a kangaroo court with false witnesses, people being bribed, false accusations. Both actually refused to defend themselves. Jesus didn't defend himself. Neither did Stephen. Remember, he just laid it out. Both even involved declarations regarding the Son of Man. Remember Pilate? Are you the Son of Man? Or is it the high priest? Are you the Son of Man? And then both addressed this concept of Jesus being at the right hand, which is how Jesus answered. Yeah, you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. Again, I think Luke has deliberately made these parallels here, but there are two other ways in which... Stephen's account here is very similar to that of Jesus. Moments before Jesus died, he cried out with a couple of phrases. Turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter start with verse 44. And it was about the the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. He noticed back in Acts chapter 7, what does Stephen say in verse 59? They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, Receive my spirit. You think he might have been recalling Jesus' words as he cried out to his father? don't know for sure, but possibly. Remember that um, 
the witnesses and that much was known about the crucifixion of Christ. And I assume many of his words were known as well. It's quite possible that Stephen was familiar with what Jesus had said, especially when you get to the next thing. Luke also records it as Jesus was being crucified. He said this, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. What does Stephen do here? Verse 60, Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Very similar to what Jesus said. Takeaway, I think, for us is this. Jesus told us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us, we see that example in Jesus as he's on the cross. He's prayed for him. Lord, forgive him. I don't know what they're doing. We see that with Stephen. Don't hold this sin against them, Lord. You know, I don't know how many of you came to Christ later in life. Like I, I mean, I did when I was 19. I don't know if that's later anymore, considering I'm 56 now. But um, I remember what it was like being unsaved. I remember being the idiot. I remember the man who chased me down for six months trying to share the gospel with me and me calling him a Jesus freak to his face, telling him I'm not interested. Even though I was out praying that God would help me. How does that work? I'm like the guy on the top of the roof saying, Lord, save me, and he keeps sending these people to rescue me and I keep sending him away. You know? But I remember what it was like. My eyes were blind. And thankfully, Bob, the guy that led me to Christ, Bob Kegel, didn't give up on me. And instead of, you know, for all the mean or nasty, rotten things I might have said to him or about him, he didn't let it get through his skin. He continued to pray for me, continued to look for opportunities. He was gracious. He was kind. He didn't let my stubbornness or my stuffed-up ears when he would come down and ask me if he could talk to me about Jesus, I'd say, no, I don't talk to me. You can be my friend. You can come here on the floor, but don't talk to me about Jesus. In fact, he taught me to play guitar. I had learned when I was real young, three or four, um, or I'm sorry, third or fourth grade, and then I had stopped. I hadn't played for years, but I wanted to learn to play guitar again, so I brought my car, guitar back to college. It was before I got saved. And he played guitar. He played in the worship band for Crusade. And so I remember the day he came down, he said, hey, you, gotta, you play guitar. And I'm like, no, no, I always kind of wanted to, but I've forgotten everything I learned. And he's like, I can teach you to play guitar. And I remember telling him, that's fine, as long as you don't talk about Jesus. So he said, okay. So he taught me to play God is so good. Just didn't tell me what the words were. Okay. I think that's really the biggest takeaway for us as we look at this. Here's this man, Stephen. He's out there just doing what the Lord called him to do. He's excited about preaching the gospel. And he gets confronted. Gets, you know, people that don't want to hear, they got their fingers in their ears, but they desperately need to hear. And they basically want him to shut up. But like Peter and John before him, he just couldn't shut up. And he ended up paying the ultimate price for it. 
But even when he paid the ultimate price, you can see the compassion that he has for those who are persecuting him. The compassion he has to even cry out and say, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Why not? They're guilty. How many of us would like to say, Lord, strike them back? But instead, I think he recognizes they're blind, they're lost. The very reason he's standing there preaching the gospel to him is because they desperately need to hear the truth and nothing's going to stop him from sharing the truth. Even his own, giving up his own life. You know, we live in a culture and a society. We've got all these perks and it's wonderful living here in the United States and you know, we've had all this freedom for the longest time and we love it, right? But we're like spoiled brats sometimes. <laughs> Meaning... Uh, one of our rights gets taken away or one of our or things gets you know, impacted a little bit or somebody says something unkind about us Christians or other things and we get all bent out of shape and all worked up and I understand that. I do too. But then I think, Stephen, compassion, love for those who are stoning him enough to cry out, Lord, don't hold it against him. And so I think the takeaway for us, especially as we look at what's happening around us today, is to be encouraged, to be lifted up, and to say, God will, or Jesus will confess, confess us before his Heavenly Father if we continue to confess him. And the only way we're able to do that is through the power of the Holy Spirit and recognizing they're blind. Lord, don't, don't hold it against them. Soften their hearts. Use this as a witness 